We ask you to breathe new life into our story this morning and give us a vision of your presence that expands our hearts and enlarges our imagination. We ask you to open up our minds to your limitless grace. We choose to join with people today and rejoice in your restoring love as we pray with the psalmist who said, uh, yes, the Lord has done amazing things for us. What joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, as streams and renew the desert. Those who plant in tears will harvest with shouts of joy. Holy Spirit, we ask that you keep our hearts tender and liberated in your presence. We ask that you unblock those places in our souls that have been flooded with bitterness or suspicion or despair. <clears throat> we ask you this morning to bring a fresh work of your love into our lives today. And we ask you to pour out those things, and pour out those things that cause us misery and pour in your peace, your shalom for us today. Father, I, <clears throat> I ask that you bring your peaceful presence to places of pain in our hearts, especially the losses that we have experienced as a church family. We long for the day that you promised in the book of Revelation. We long for the days that, uh, as Ezekiel put it, the fruit will not fall and the leaves will be for healing. And so, Father, we hold on to that vision of living waters that impart life to us. They come from your presence to us, your people. And we ask that you draw others into an intimate communion with you this morning as we can kind of just sit back in our chair but pray and, and with, uh, with yearning, come Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you for living and loving in us and through us. We ask that may everything we do flow out of our deep connection with you. Help us to become a community that shares each other's burdens, that listen to our heart's longings for the healing of the world, knowing that you are hearing us better than we're able to speak. And so we offer these prayers in the name of the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We are continuing in the book of Mark, and um, since the time when I first kind of made the gospel, my personal gospel, and Jesus, you know, and, and I came to de declare that publicly, since then, um, the word gospel has come on to make a, have, a, have a weightier meaning for me. Uh, it means more than what I thought it meant, the, more the simplicity that I thought it meant. It doesn't mean it's more complicated now. It's just that there's more to it than what I thought. Uh, unfortunately, the, go the word gospel, uh, the Greek word is uh, evangelion, which where we get evangelism and evangelistic and evangelicals, has kind of been weighted down since in my lifetime with a lot of stuff. Uh, it's been weighted down with uh, political undertones. It's been weighted down with, um, with uh, some sleazy TV preachers back in the 70s and the 80s and 90s. Uh, it's been weighted down with some scandals in, with high-profile leaders and in institutions and denominations and churches. And so it has come down to weight. But the word is still good. <laughs> the word is still a good word. Uh, it means good news. And good news is something that when we hear... It's something that we get excited about. We celebrate it. We, we are happy. It's, it's when you hear that your, your niece was accepted into the college that she was trying to get into. That's, that's, worth, that's exciting. It's, it's, 
it's, a, it's good news when you hear that your daughter is engaged to a really good and kind man. And we celebrated and we were encouraged by that. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's good news when your friend who's been out of a job for two or three months finally lands a job. That's good news and we're celebrating and we're excited. When you look at the good news in the Bible, even from the Old Testament on into the, into the New Testament, it's all about something to get excited about, something to get happy about, something to celebrate. And it's really closely connected to the word shalom, which it's that and its Greek counterpart is Irene in the New Testament. Those things occur over, that word occurs over 600 times in the Bible, close to 650 times. And it's always connected to the good news. It's always connected to God's rule, the kingdom of God, that where God's will is done, it's exciting. It's worth celebrating. It's good news. It's something to be happy about. It's that shalom. And we usually translate it as peace uh, in, 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 the, in both, both Greek and Hebrew. But it means so much more than that. Just like the gospel means so much more to me today than it did 40 years ago. 40 50 years ago? <laughs> Gee, how time flies. <laughs> it means so much more now, but it's so much deeper that it, mean, it's, it has the idea of wholeness and well-being and completeness. Wherever God rules, there is shalom. The, they even describe the perfection of the creation of Genesis 1 and 2 as shalom because that is where, that is where God, God rules. Well, we're going to be looking at, at the rest of Mark chapter 5 this morning. And that we see this sort of what Jesus is doing here has to relate to that. It, has to, it kind of calls back to Genesis 1 and 2 where Shalom was, was prevalent and was reigning. And, and what we look forward to in the book of Revelation when it comes full circle that Amber read this morning, just now read. And there's, we see that glimpses of it here in this, these two chapters, but we also see faces of desperation. We see a couple of faces of people in despair, and yet we get to see this, this glimpse, this glimpse of, of, of shalom. And we saw it in, in, in Mark, from, from Mark chapter 1, verse 1, where Mark says, this is the story about the good news, something to get excited about of Jesus Christ. And so from here on out, all the way through the end of the book, it is about the good news. And you kind of get these roller coaster feelings of what's happening, but it's all, all about the good news. It's all about this recreation in the presence of Jesus, and it's about the, the, the establishment, the inauguration of God's reign and the crumbling of Satan's reign. That's what the book is, is all about. And as we get into chapter 6, we're going to see that, that, that message of the good news kind of becomes more and more and more divisive where there's this contrast of faith and belief and contrast with unbelief. And it's even getting a little bit more dangerous. As we get into chapter 6, it's where Mark describes the death of John the Baptist. And so, yeah, it's all about this good news, but it all becomes a little bit more controversial. And what we have here in chapter 5 are these stories of shalom. They are moments of desperation, but we see these glimpses of shalom. Uh, the last two the stories of chapter 5, we, saw the, the, we looked at the story of the, the man that was possessed by the unclean spirit. Well, now we're going to look at two healings. And we're going to look at, it's actually two stories in one, the rest of the chapter. And theologians have looked at this. This is kind of a technique of Mark to have these two stories together like this. 
And theologians have come up with this really sophisticated term to describe this form of narrative. They call it a sandwich. <laughs> Very theological term, right? And what it is is that Mark starts off with one story, and then he goes to another story, and then he returns back to the first story. And his point in this, and the way he does this, and why he does it, is so that these stories kind of, re, kind of interpret each other. They reinforce each other. So one says one thing, well, this other story just kind of reinforces it, and then we come back, and it kind of reinforces it again. So this is all about the presence, the inauguration of the king, of the kingdom of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we see these first, we're just going to look at it in piecemeal here. We see the first face of despair. And uh, I'm not going to read the whole story there. It's, it's pretty long, but we'll look at in parts of it. And basically the story starts with Jesus coming back from the land of the enemy, basically. He was in the land of the pagan Gentiles, and that's where he comes, that's where he confronts the man with the unclean spirit. And so he's coming back across the lake, and he's back home. He's back in his home turf, and we think that that would be the safe place, but it turns out it's not all that safe. If you remember in the past, this is where he faced a lot of opposition. So he's back on his home, home turf. He says, when Jesus again crossed over by the boat on the other side of the lake, a large ga crowd gathered around him, around him while he was at the lake. And then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came there, and seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet. And he pleaded with him earnestly, Come, come and lay your hand on my daughter so that she will be saved and healed because she is dying. And so Jesus went with him, but the large crowd followed him, and they pressed against him. So this first face of despair is this leader of the synagogue, a Jewish father. And so when Jesus is back on his home turf, the elite, the establishment, he faced opposition. You might remember that the last time he was in the synagogue, he healed a man with a withered hand, but on the Sabbath, God forbid, and uh, he healed this man, and then, then he was cast out these demons, and the, and the leaders got together, these synagogue leaders and the scribes, they got together to plot, how are we going to get rid of this guy? So he faces opposition from the elite, but the crowd loved him, naturally. And so when he arrives, he sees this man who is one of the leaders of the synagogue. Mark mentions it three times. He wants us to get it, that this guy is a leader of the synagogue. He is part of the establishment. He is part of the elite. And this man coming to him, and I'm wondering if Jesus thinking, oh boy, here we go again. Here we are. But instead, he falls at his feet. Now, what would cause this man to do such an undignified thing? To have this undignified, this undignified behavior to fall at Jesus' feet. He must have seen Jesus heal. He must have heard Jesus teach. And it's funny what despair will do to you. Amen. You suddenly become needy for help. And he's heard Jesus teach. He saw what he does. Maybe he can help. And so he falls at his feet and he pleads with him. Please, can you do something? Can you lay your hands on her? And he uses, even uses the word save. Can you lay your hands on her and save her because she's dying? And the ancients, when they, when they saw healers or doctors, it was, it was very important. They understood the importance of touch, of human touch, how important that is. And it's just so happened, Joe and I were talking about that this week, about how important human touch is. And he says, so I'm going to mention to Joe, he says it's almost sacred. And I thought, yeah, he's right. 
The human touch is just almost sacred. And he's asking Jesus to lay his hands on her so that she will be healed. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus says, well, you should have thought about that before you wanted to try to kill me. No, he didn't. He said, let's go to, let's go to your home. And so they start off toward the house. Then we get interrupted. And there's a second face of despair. This anonymous woman seeks him out and hunts for him. Real quickly, I'll read this section. And the woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of doctors, and she spent everything she had, but her condition only got worse. And when she heard that Jesus was around, she, she came up behind them in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. And immediately her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from suffering. And as Jesus realized that power had gone from him, he turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched me? Who touched my clothes? And the disciples said, um, you, you see the people around you, right? <laughs> and yet you ask, Who touched me? And Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet. And trembling with fear, he told her, she told him the whole truth. The second face of despair. Evil shows no favoritism. Whether you are a religious leader in the synagogue or whether you're some anonymous woman in a crowd, evil shows no favoritism. It will grip anyone, and it grips everyone. And she is in this despair because she's mourning the loss of her life the loss of 12 years of her life. And it's not just the physical disease, it's the thing that happens to her. When I was at Northwestern College, my department, which was missions, uh, overlapped a lot with the nursing department, not by design, just by, just organically. Why? Because nurses, they go into nursing because they are born to serve. And these people serve. And so just by happen, they got involved in my program, the missions department. And I remember talking with one of the nursing students, and she says, yeah, here we get taught nursing philosophy from a very Christian perspective point of view. And she said that um, there is a difference between disease and illness. And I said, tell me more. <laughs> what, what do you mean? And she said, well, disease is, is the malfunction of the body. It's when the body doesn't work right, the cells are not, are not duplicating right, are not functioning correctly, or there's a, there's a parasite or there's something that has invaded the body. That's the disease. The illness is what it affects, how it affects the person, what they live with, the pain they're under, as well as the, the feeling of insignificance, the feeling of being marginalized, of just being out of society. That's the illness. That's what the person feels. And he said, she said, doctors go in and they can hopefully, you know, correct some of these things. They correct the disease, but we need to deal with the illness of the person as well. And that has stuck with me for a long time. And I think that's what's going on here. Because not only does she have a disease of hemorrhaging for 12 years, but she is also experiencing an illness that carries over in society because she's unclean. She is unclean, declared unclean. And it means anybody that touches her is unclean. 
Anybody she touches becomes unclean. Anything she sits on becomes unclean. So at best, people were averting their gaze or, or avoiding her, and at worst, they held her with contempt. We don't know whether she was married or had kids or whatever, but nobody was allowed to touch her. And so what does she do? She reaches out to try to touch Jesus and touches the cloth and thinking that maybe that's what I can do. Maybe that will, that will heal me. And maybe I can have the joy restored. And so we have this second act of desperation. We have one guy who, who was this elite in society falling at the feet of Jesus, and we have this woman in desperation just working her way through the crowd just to touch his clothes. And Jesus stops and says, who did that? Who touched me? Because he felt the power. And his disciples going, for heaven's sakes, Jesus, you're surrounded by people. What do you mean who touched? And he waited. He waited. Her disease was cured, but she didn't have shalom. She didn't have wholeness. She didn't have well-being. And so he waits and waits. And finally, now you remember, they're urgently trying to get to this girl, right? But he waits for her until she comes up and she's trembling with fear and tells him the whole truth. Why is she fearful? My immediate response was, well, because she touched somebody she wasn't supposed to touch. But then I started thinking back a couple of chapters before this, and you have the disciples being afraid in the boat after he calmed the storm. It, they, were, they were anxious, I'm sure, when the storm happened, but after he calmed it, then they were afraid because they were thinking, who is this person? Who are we in the presence of? And I really think when I read this text a little bit more carefully, I think that's what made her afraid. It wasn't that she was afraid of being caught or reprimanded. She felt the body being healed immediately, and now she's thinking, who is this man? Who is this? And her natural response was fear. And yet she touched and she shows, shares the story. Let me pause here for a minute because this, is, this story kind of causes a little bit of complications here about power falling out of Jesus and going to her and all those things. And, and um, uh, it, it kind of gives you the idea that the power of God works like electricity. You know, that it just kind of flows, you know. And you have, if you have a conduit, it kind of flows. I don't think that's it at all, okay? When Jesus, when the second person of the Trinity became man, he gave up the use of all divine attributes, his omniscience, his omnipresence, and his, om, uh, his omnipotency. He gave those up. And so the power that Jesus possessed is what God the Father bestows on him. And somehow or another, Jesus knew when that power went to her. God is still in control of the power. It doesn't work just automatically like electricity. He is still in control of the power. And when he saw her faith, when he saw her faith, he used that power to heal her. That's what happened. And Jesus was feeling that. And he felt that, something about that, that power of God feeling, leaving him, or from going from God the Father to this person. And it healed her. And with this, he listened to her. 
And so not only do we have these faces of despair, now we have these glimpses of shalom. And he calls the woman out, and she comes forward, and he says, what happened? And what happened was this woman, for 12 years, felt the power flow out of her, physically and spiritually. The power was flowing out of her. And then suddenly that power gets reversed. Jesus doesn't cancel the law. He fulfills the law. He did not become unclean because she touched him. What happened? The other way around. He made her clean. And that's the same way it works for us. God didn't cancel the law of the Old Testament. He fulfilled it. We don't, we don't receive God's judgment because we belong to Jesus. He fulfills the law. He doesn't cancel it. And I think that's what happened out here. The power has been flowing out of her, but the love then flowed, in, flowed into her. And the thing about it, Jesus is pure love, and love cannot be morally desecrated. It cannot be dirtied. John tells us that the essence of God is love. And what we have here is this essence of love that can't be dirtied, it can't be desecrated, it works the other way. It works the other way, the flow goes the other way. And so we see here this recreation present. He is giving her shalom. And what's wonderful is this, and I think the, the pivot of this whole story is the blessing that Jesus gives. <clears throat> and uh, he says in verse 34, he said to her, daughter, your faith has saved you. There's that word saved again. So-so. Your Bible may, re may be translated healed, but it's the word we use for salvation. He said, your daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be freed from your affliction. And that we can kind of gloss over that, but to me that is the pivot point of the whole story, is this priestly blessing he gives her. He calls her daughter. He's on the way to see a daughter, but this woman doesn't have a gyrus in her life. She doesn't have somebody to advocate for her. But now she has Jesus, and Jesus kind of redefines the family here. He calls her daughter. And I'm sure it's been years since anyone ever considered her a daughter or called her a daughter. But Jesus does. And then what does he say? Go in shalom. Go in peace. The recreation has started. The kingdom has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. And it is being inaugurated in him. This blessing of shalom comes upon her. And so after that, they end up going back down to the, down to the house. And I'll finish reading the story here. While Jesus was still speaking, some men from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler, he keeps repeating that synagogue ruler thing, uh, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. And he did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John. And they came into the house and the home of the synagogue ruler, 
And Jesus saw the commotion, people crying, music playing, wailing loudly. And he went in and said to them, all this commotion and wailing, this child's not dead, she's asleep. And they laughed at him. And he put them all out and he took the child's father and mother and the disciples that came with him and they went to the room where the child was. And they took her by the hand and he said, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. And immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. And at this, they were completely astonished. And then he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this. And he told them to give her something to eat. This is the second glimpse of Shalom. Before we move on to this, I need to make another little side, side note here. This is, um, this is tough theology. Because we know, we can almost bet, that there were other people who were ill who were sick, who were diseased, and not just this one woman. Why her? Why did he heal her? And we can almost bet that that same day, other people died. Why this girl? And we say the same thing. Why did God heal that person and not heal my son? Why did God, one of my favorite professors had a son who got into drug addiction and, and committed suicide. And he had a good, good friend, a very, very good friend, who God delivered from his addiction. And he's like, why did God deliver him and not my son? In my, my uh, church that I was ordained in, Fellowship Bible Church, I had, it was in a small group, and my small group leader was an elder in our church named Rick Nutter, and he, he got cancer. And we prayed over him, prayed over him, and God delivered him. God healed him. Ten years later, the cancer comes back, and he died. Why? Why do things like that happen? And I know those are legitimate questions that we have. Why are, why are these things here? Well, let me say one thing. First of all, all healings are temporary. Every single one of them. All healings are temporary. This little girl eventually died. This woman, she eventually died. Everyone will eventually die if Jesus doesn't come back. They're all temporary. But I think what we're seeing here is, is this glimpse of what God's going to do. We see these glimpses of the kingdom that he is bringing the shalom from the future that we heard about in Revelation, and, he's, and it's breaking in at this times. And I think what we see are glimpses of what God is going to do. What we have here is... is we have the world we live in meets the world we long for. And these things kind of break through, and we see what the world that we live in is, is a mess. The world we long for is what we hope, and we see these two things together. I, we can't detach these stories, these miracles, from the whole thing that, that Mark was talking about at the very beginning. This is the kingdom of God. We can't separate those things. That's why I think he were, uses the word saved here. When I, like I said, when my early teen years, when I, when I made the gospel my own and I came publicly to do that, for me it was just, okay, when I die, I go to heaven. Good, good with that. But now I'm finding out it's so much more than that. And these are things, I think Mark records these things to show us that this is what shalom looks like. This is what it's going to look like. That's what it looked like in Genesis 1 and 2, and this is what it's going to look like in Revelation 22. This is what we hope for. And so we see these reversals 
of the fall, the reversals of the old creation, the fall. It, it's, in my opinion, it's easy for us to see God in the beautiful. I mean, we, we will try to make trips down to the riverfront just to see the sunset. You know, uh, we were going to go down there the other day because the crowds were a little, clouds were a little bit nice. We thought this would be great, go see the sunset. Well, we got there and it became totally overcast. And so, so what? But those moments that you do, you just go, that's, that's the presence of God. It's easy to see God in the beautiful, but I almost think it's more meaningful to see God in the darkness. And when we can see God in the darkness, then it means more to us. Even in those times of deep, deep despair, we see these glimpses and we see, we see the presence of Christ. It's no secret that our world is absolutely gorgeous, especially if you live here. Our world is totally beautiful, but we also know that it's a mess on the international level, the national level, the community level, even down to the family level. It is a mess because we are a mess, and we're all seeking some sort of, some sort of salvation from anxiety or illness or depression or loneliness. We're all seeking some sort of, dep- some sort of salvation, and, and we have these divine avatars kind of thing that, that maybe that'll deliver us from this. Maybe it'll be a, a good job, or maybe it'll be a property, the property that we own, or maybe it'll be uh, have friendships, or maybe it'll be falling in love, or maybe it's reincarnation. So they're looking for all these kinds of things as these sort of these avatars for God. But Mark puts it here, and it's the person of Jesus Christ. It's him. And he promises to put things right. And every now and then we get these glimpses, this arrival of shalom. And it starts with the person of Jesus. The shalom of the future breaks in every now and then for the presence because it starts to create new life now. So how do we maintain this? How do we experience shalom? How do we he keep the idea, keep our focus on the shalom that does break through and that this is what God's promised and this is what we look forward to. I've got five things here that I think we should know, okay? First of all, we need to know that God doesn't torment, Satan does. God does not torment us. Remember last week, we talked about the Satan's strategy. They, Satan's got one strategy, one, one root reason, to, uh, one strategy to do and technique, and that is to convince us that God is not a good father, that it's him who wants to punish us, that's him that wants to, to make us suffer, it's, it's him that can't wait to bring down, you know, hail and fire and brimstone on us, that he's the one who wants to torment us. It's not him, and Satan wants to convince us of that, and if he can convince us that, that, uh, that God really is happy to judge us, then in his mind, well, God's happy, Satan's happy, we're all happy, except us. But it's not God who torments it, it's Satan that torments us. Jesus gives us our life back. He restores our true self. That false self that we have to present to other people, the false self that we think we might be, that we have to try to maintain, that's not it. It's that true self that God created in us, that image of God, he restores that. It's like our true owner is reclaiming us. That we have a different, we have a, a, falk, a false owner who thinks he owns us, but he doesn't. And in, through Christ, the real owner of our lives reclaims us. We get our life back. We are restored. We saw in the chapter 5, people that were, their false self was suffering in psychologically, emotionally, and physically. And these stories tell us that Jesus restores us. 
The third thing is that Jesus can detect any movement in his direction, even if it's, even if it's a long shot, like just reaching out to touch a cloth. Even if you think it's a long shot, he, re, he, he responds to any movement in his direction. And then he will look us into the eye, and he will, we are not just another face in the crowd. We are not just another anonymous person trying to, trying to get something out of him. That we are no longer anonymous, and he will wait until we come around. And I believe that even the desire to touch him is pleasing to him. We may be sitting back going, yeah, I really would like to know God. I really would like to know. I think even that pleases God. Just the desire to be with him. The desire. And then he will call you, my son, go in shalom. He will call you, my daughter, go in shalom. What a beautiful way to see God. That God addresses us by name. And he invites us into the community he invites us to the table, and that's where, we, that's where we find him. Whether it's the Gentile, pagan, demoniac, the woman who is suffering from hemorrhaging, or the child who, is, who has completely died. He restores us. He gives us shalom, the inclusion in the community. Uh, one of my favorite Dallas Willard quotes is, I know God's address. It's at the end of my rope. And it's in those moments of despair that that's where God appears. So back here, finally, number four, we are not the only needy ones. And what I mean by that is that we sometimes get, our pride gets in the way that, of, oh, I'm so, I need him, I need him, I need him, and I need this. That's, that's perfectly fine. But we're not the only ones with needs. You know who else has needs? It's God. God is the needy one. Not in this codependent kind of way. He needs us because he is love. And love, by definition, has to have an object to love. There has to be a flow of love, and that's us. And so for God, there's a lot of things. We say God can do anything. Well, there's not, that's not true. There's a lot of things God can't do. God can't go against his nature, against his nature. He can't do anything that violates his nature. And his nature, his essence is love. And so when we come to God, we're actually fulfilling one of his needs, if you want to put it in quotation marks, of loving us, of loving us back. And finally, we're not called to bring shalom to the whole world. Some people have bigger arenas than we do, but... We're not called to bring shalom to the whole world, but we are called to bring shalom to our world, to our spouses, our family, our friends, our churches. We are called to bring shalom to our world, to live where life flourishes and love flourishes around us and through us. True wisdom is being able to discern, able to discern the way of life is from God and the way of death is from humans and so we need to discern those two and we bring the life of God to others we are conduits for shalom bottom line this is what I get from the story this is why I say that the gospel is 
um, much broader than I thought it was 50 years ago. That it is encompassing so much that with the slightest movement toward him, just the slightest movement toward him, he will call us out of a crowd and he will listen to us and he will offer us shalom. He will see we are no longer faceless, we are no longer nameless, we are no longer uh, orphans. He will call us out of the crowd and he will stop the bleeding and he will bring life to the corpse. That's what he's here for. And we respond to that. That, to me, is the point of the story, these stories, that all it takes is just a little movement in his direction. You may want to fall at his feet, or you just maybe want to touch the hem of his garment, but he stops the bleeding, and he offers us shalom. Father, we are thankful for this, this, these stories that are so powerful, and kind of jarring and kind of hard to understand. But Father, I just thank you for the, the truth that they bring that you want to restore us. And so Father, by faith, we, are, we admit and acknowledge that we are reclaimed by our true owner. And we thank you for that, for grace and for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.